Good afternoon. I received the following assignment from the elders. The topic we would like you to speak on is about what the church is and what its mission is. We ask that you consider the following points, after which they listed eight questions. So my plan for this afternoon, with the time that's been allotted to me, is to speak to the mission of the church and to work my way through those eight questions. The first question they asked is, what is the church? Our English word church comes from the German word kirke, which in turn comes from a Greek word kyriake. Kyriake is a compound word that takes kurios and oikia, combines them together, and it means literally the Lord's house. Kyriake means the Lord's house. And when we're talking about the church, we're talking about the Lord's house. But if you look in the New Testament Greek, you will not find the word kyriake used in the New Testament. Instead, you will find a word, ekklesia. Ekklesia was used among the Greeks to denote a body of citizens gathered together to discuss the state of affairs. Ekklesia was also used to describe an informal gathering of people, an assemblage, or a meeting. People with a shared belief, like philosophers, would get together, and their gathering was called an ecclesia. In Acts chapter 19, verse 32, Luke describes the Ephesian mob that gathered to protest what Paul was doing. He describes that mob as an ecclesia. In the Septuagint, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30, Moses spoke the words of his song in the hearing of the assembly of Israel, the assembly of Israel, the ecclesia of Israel. So ecclesia simply means a gathering, an assembly, a congregation of people. And it was the word that was used over and over throughout the New Testament to describe the assembled people of God. Those who gather in the name of Jesus in local groups were called an ecclesia. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 2, Paul addresses that letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, to the church, to the ecclesia of God. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, in his teaching on the Lord's Supper, Paul refers to the church, the local church regularly meeting. He talks about when you come together as a church, come together as an ecclesia. So ecclesia described the local body of believers who gathered together in one place as the church. Now that word is used in other ways in the New Testament, but I want to stick with this meaning because I think that's really the intent of the lesson. For our purposes today, I want to think of the church in this immediate sense. The church is the gathering together in one place of those who have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The elders also asked me, what's the difference between going to church and being the church? And it's an excellent question considering what I've just talked about. What's the difference between going to church and being the church? Jesus ends what we call the Sermon on the Mount with a parable contrasting two men. The two men each built a house, but they were built on two different foundations. One was on a rock, the other was on sand. Both men, Jesus says, hear his words. They have heard his words. 
The difference between the two was the application of those words. The wise man heard the words of Jesus and applied them to his life. The wise man was a doer and not a hearer only. James builds on this concept in the first chapter of his letter. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He exhorts in verse 22. Hearers go through the motions and put on a performance. Hearers enjoy listening to the word of God and pay lip service to the Christian faith. Hearers are interested in information. But doers of the word authentically live out the tenets of the Christian faith. Doers apply what they hear to their lives. Doers are interested in transformation. But above all, hearers and doers of the word are separated by their honesty. Hearers are living a lie. They deceive themselves. They believe they are Christians when in reality they are not. In my mind, what separates going to church from being the church is the same thing that separates doers of the word from hearers only. Going to church means we go through the motions and put on a performance. Going to church means we like listening to the word of God. We pay lip service to the Christian faith. Going to church means we like to hear that information, but it doesn't really affect us in our day-to-day lives. Being the church, though, means we are authentically living out the tenets of the Christian faith. Being the church means we apply what we hear to our lives. Being the church means we are interested in transformation. And sadly, if we think of the church as someplace we go, as opposed to something we are, then we are just lying to ourselves. As Billy Sunday once quipped, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. This contrast between going to church and being the church comes into greater relief when we think about the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? Well, Scripture offers at least five major missions of the church. I'm just going to breeze through these very quickly. The first mission of the church is to glorify God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is our first mission as the church. We are here to glorify God. Our second mission as the church is to worship God in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We are here to glorify God. We are here to worship Him in spirit and truth. And the third mission for the church is to strengthen our fellow Christians. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, a passage I'll talk, to, talk about a little bit later, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. When we come together, we come together to glorify God, to worship Him in spirit and truth, and to strengthen one another. A fourth mission for the church is to uphold the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul tells the evangelist Timothy, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church holds up the truth so that it can be seen by all around us. This is part of our mission. And finally... Our mission as the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know it. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul asks the question, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. When we gather together as the church, we do so to fulfill these missions. To glorify God, to worship Him, to strengthen one another, to uphold the truth, and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know Him. It is impossible to think about the mission of the church and conclude that we can go to church. No, brethren, we are the church. This is our mission. This is our calling. To be the church, we must live out the tenets of the Christian faith in all sincerity. We must apply the Word of God to our lives. We must seek personal transformation. Here's another question the elders asked me. Is forsaking the assembly, the failure to show up at a service, or the failure to participate at all in the interaction and worship of the church? To forsake means to abandon, to desert, to leave behind. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy about his current circumstances. He urges Timothy to join him quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Paul was in Rome. Demas had departed for Thessalonica. Demas was once with Paul, but had forsaken him. Demas abandoned Paul. Later in verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one stood with me. But all forsook me, may it not be charged against them. At Paul's trial, none of his companions stood with him. He defended himself by himself. His companions, Paul said, forsook him. They abandoned him. They deserted him. So in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 4, to forsake means to desert, to abandon, to leave behind. As Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness had encompassed the land. His accusers were circling like vultures, tempting him with taunts like, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Hanging between two robbers with no friends, no help, no relief, Jesus felt utterly alone. 
And so he asks God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me to this cruel death? In Hebrews 13 and 5, the writer of Hebrews urges, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Contentment, not covetousness, should be our aim. Covetousness is often driven by a need for safety and security. We convince ourselves that if we accumulate more possessions or more wealth, it will protect us from harm. The writer of Hebrews counsels us to learn contentment because the Lord has promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is our shield. The Lord is our defender. He is our protector and our provider. He will not leave us or abandon us. Therefore, we should overcome covetousness with contentment. Again, forsake means to desert, to abandon, to leave behind. So when the writer of Hebrews warns against not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, here is what he means. There were those in his day who had abandoned the Christian faith completely. They had abandoned the Christian faith completely in favor of returning to the old law. He goes on in verse 26. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, the verse that follows not forsaking the assembly. Here's what he says. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. A few verses later in verse 35, he says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. And before he begins the chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, he says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. The purpose of the book of Hebrews was to encourage Jewish Christians to remain true to Jesus Christ and to not return to the old law. And one of the indicators of a turn from Jesus was to forsake, to abandon, to desert the assembling of ourselves together, to leave the body of Jesus Christ behind. So what does it mean to forsake the assembling of ourselves together? It does not mean to occasionally miss a gathering together of the church for unavoidable reasons. Rather, to forsake means to, that one has given up all intentions of ever meeting with the church again. Another question I was asked is, are we commanded to participate in everything in the church services or other church-sponsored functions? And are we sinning if we do not participate? The parable of the talents was mentioned by Joshua earlier. I'm glad you only spent a couple of minutes talking about it. 
But I think the parable of talents has a great answer to this question. In that parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wealthy man entrusting his servants with a portion of his wealth. He gives five talents to one servant, two talents to another, and one talent to a third. The different amounts are apportioned according to the ability of each servant. He leaves them behind to do business. When he returns, he demands a report. The first two servants put their master's money to work and brought a return. And as Joshua reminds us, the third servant who was given one talent buried it out of fear. The master condemned him and his talent was given to the first servant. The parable represents God's view of how his servants are to work in his kingdom. The kingdom represents the church. The master is Jesus. We are the servants. The master has entrusted us all with abilities we are to put to work in the kingdom. And one day Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will want to know how we have put his gifts to work in the church. From the parable, we can draw out several important take-home lessons. Every servant in God's kingdom has something to contribute to the kingdom. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to recognize what those gifts are and put them to work. The gifts are not the same. Regardless, the Lord expects us to, again, put them to work. And in putting them to work, God expects growth. The exercise of those gifts should lead to an increase in abilities. Now, Jesus does not condemn the third man for being less able than his companions. How could Jesus condemn that man for being less able? Jesus is the one who who distributed the abilities based on an individual's capacity. Though the second servant was given three talents less than the first, the Lord praised the second servant for his faithfulness and rewarded his growth occasionally. Or, pardon me, accordingly. So being less talented or less gifted isn't the issue. It's not the issue in the Lord's eyes. What the Lord condemns is the complete lack of initiative on the third servant's part. The servant attempts to deflect responsibility to the master. If you weren't so cruel and mean, I would not have been afraid. It's all your fault that I wasn't successful. The third servant plays the victim card. He claims it was his fear of the master that prevented him from acting. But Jesus calls it what it is. He calls it laziness. You wicked and lazy servant. He goes on to condemn the servant for failing to lift a finger to do the absolute bare minimum of what could be done. The parable is an echo of something Jesus says a chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 24. When he returns, what will he find us doing? Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. If we are not participating in the work of the kingdom of God, what are we doing instead? 
Are we comfortable with the possibility that Jesus may find us otherwise occupied? This seems to go along with another question that I was asked. I was asked, is God pleased with a Christian picking and choosing which services of the congregation he or she will attend? Which services he or she would skip, if so inclined? An excuse I hear from time to time is, we miss church for family time, or some variation on that theme. I grew up in a home with some dysfunction that broke apart later on in life. I sympathize with the impulse that some of you feel. Some of you feel very strongly that you don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. And so you go above and beyond to provide your kids, your family, with a sense of family that you did not have. And generally speaking, I think the church has done a pretty good job to be supportive of families in a time when the family is under assault. But I'm going to say something that may be hard for some of you to hear. Anyone who misses church because of family time is playing what amounts, in my judgment, to to a get-out-of-jail-free card. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I sympathize with the impulse. But I'm skeptical of the excuse. My dad was gone a lot on business trips when I was growing up. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. My mom spent a lot of months of too many years raising me and my two siblings essentially by herself. It took a real emotional and mental toll on her that I have come to understand and appreciate more the older I've gotten. I don't know how she did it, to be quite frank. Looking back, one of the things I really appreciate about her is she had us at church three times a week, week in and week out. Now, I don't think her faithful attendance made her any more righteous or more of a Christian than anyone else. But there's no question in my mind that her faithfulness and attendance formed long-lasting, deeply ingrained, positive habits in the lives of me, and I think I can say for my siblings. Her faith impacted our faith. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that church attendance is some sort of magic bullet that guarantees the next generation will remain faithful to the Lord. I've seen plenty of kids walk away from the Lord whose parents parents have made it the priority to be at church three times a week. But I can say this. Parents who see church as optional tend to have children who see the church as unnecessary. Like it or not, We send our kids messages by the priorities we set and the choices we make. We would be better served by thinking of church time as family time. This is family time. But on the flip side, I also see that the church has a real responsibility to be sure that what is offered during a service makes the sacrifice worthwhile. 
A woman once shared her frustrations about Wednesday night classes. She did not grow up around the Church of Christ. She met her future husband, who did, not, who did attend the Church of Christ growing up, and she was baptized. The church they attended started studying the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights around the time that the two of them began dating. Twenty-seven years later, they finished the book of Malachi. I hope you're laughing because you haven't experienced it. But I dare say this may be the case in more churches than I even want to acknowledge. This is an extreme, but it's a real-life example of what can happen when little to no thought is given to how the congregation is fed. Amen, amen, amen. Perhaps our attendance suffers because we are putting far too little effort toward ensuring that what happens in the service is worth the sacrifice of time and energy. And rather than beating people over the head with a two-by-four and reminding them, don't forsake the assembly of the saints, maybe we should make the assembly of the saints something worth going to. Whether or not God is pleased with our choices in the realm of church participation and attendance, that's way above my pay grade to answer. But I can say this. The choices we make and the priorities we set reveal what is really important to us. A habit of regularly attending church service is one indicator of long-term faithfulness to the Lord, and it undoubtedly impacts those in our sphere of influence. Now, I'm talking more about more than just your family. It impacts everyone. But on the flip side, because folks are making sacrifices in terms of time and energy, the church should do everything in its power to make every service worthwhile and relevant. Another question I was asked is, where are the dividing lines if they really exist? I guess I could have called either Charles or Greg and got a clarification on this, but I just decided I'd interpret this question. And here's... Here's the interpretation I came away with. I think what they're asking me is what separates a legitimate reason for missing church from a poor excuse? Where are the dividing lines? To those living under the old law, Jesus taught that exceptional circumstances sometimes stood in the way of keeping the Sabbath. When reasoning whether or not he should heal a withered man's hand on the Sabbath, Jesus asked the question, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, we're not called to keep the Sabbath any longer. But I would argue that our attendance at church services falls along the same sort of lines. We have set aside a few hours of the week, every week, to worship God and meet with our brethren. 
Using Jesus' example, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus understands that there are exceptional or unusual circumstances. So it seems to me that the principle he's teaching has some application in, in our present day, that the principle transcends the change in covenant. Therefore, in my view, missing a church service here or there to tend to what is pressing or immediate, an exceptional circumstance, does not constitute forsaking the assembling of the saints. However, consider what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60. In Luke 9, 59 and 60, Jesus commands a man to follow him. But the man says to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now here's another exceptional circumstance. A man asks Jesus to give him time to bury his father, but Jesus refuses to give him more time. Judging by what I noted earlier, it would be easy to argue that the burying of one's father is of greater importance than rescuing a, an errant sheep on the Sabbath day. So I wonder, why was this not a reasonable justification for a short delay? Well, how many of us are really honest with ourselves and one another about the reasons why we miss service? We don't tell our elders that we stayed home to play the latest Call of Duty release. We don't tell our elders that we stayed home to binge the latest release on Netflix. And we don't confess that the verse-by-verse -verse study of Lamentations on Wednesday night just doesn't interest us. We don't say things like that. Rather, we put lipstick on the pig by coming up with some sort of noble-sounding excuse some sort of noble-sounding justification like, well, we stayed home to have a family Bible study. And while we might pull the wool over one another's eyes, Jesus sees right through those excuses. Jesus saw something amiss in this man, and he called him on it. He dismissed his excuse. Where are the dividing lines? How do we discern between what is a legitimate excuse for missing an assembly of the church from one that is not legitimate? Exceptional circumstances do exist, brethren. And in such cases, the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. Therefore, we should be merciful and understanding to one another. But on the other hand, we need to be very careful about the stories we tell ourselves and one another. We need to be very careful about what we choose to do instead of attending an assembly of the church. So while there are exceptional circumstances, let's not take advantage of the Lord. The last question I was asked is, how can we grow in fulfilling the biblical vision of Christ's church? How can we grow in fulfilling the biblical vision of Christ's church? I'll give you two ways that we can grow. We can grow when we bring our values into alignment with God's purpose for the church. 
In the sixth chapter of Matthew, Jesus warns us against misplaced values. Performative righteousness was more important to the Pharisees and scribes than actual righteousness. They were more interested in honor from men than honor from God. Jesus describes this as treasure. What we treasure represents our values, where we set our heart, what is really important to us. The pursuit of status symbols like the praise of men and clothing and full barns. These were demonstrations of wealth and affluence and privilege sought by the world. Jesus urges us to pull our eyesight away from the world. To align our values with the values of God. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Fulfilling the biblical vision for Christ's church requires us to first align our personal values with what is really important to God. We will never be the church God has called us to be unless we see the church and its purpose as God sees it. And number two, we cannot fulfill the Lord's vision for the church unless each of us accepts personal responsibility for the state of the church. One of the lessons driven home in the books of 1 Kings through 2 Chronicles is the various ways the kings, both good and bad, treated the temple of God. The historical record runs the gamut from careful stewardship of the temple to casual neglect to gross negligence to outright abomination. I'm not particularly shocked by the way, by the inconsistent ways, the kings of Judah treated the temple. That tendency is certainly a part of human nature. What's shocking to me is God allowed it to happen. He allowed them to do with His house whatever they wanted to do. Through the Spirit, God inspired David to draw plans for the temple. Those plans were largely based on the design of the tabernacle that God revealed to Moses with some additions. And in His providence, God provided all the materials for the temple. And according to the record, the finished product was stunning. After providing the plans and the materials and ensuring the original was correctly built, God seems to step away. Yes, it was still the Lord's house, and His presence was still there. But He gave Judah the freedom to do with it what it willed. They treated the house of God however they wanted to treat it. And God allowed it for a time. Remember what Jesus said to the money changers who corrupted the second temple. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you, you have made it a den of thieves. This leads me to a sobering conclusion. The church will be whatever we want the church to be. It's true there are factors outside of our control that impact the unfolding history of a congregation. 
People move in, people move out. Sheep come into the fold, sheep wander away. Communities rise, communities die out. Cultures go through times of receptiveness to the gospel and times of outright hostility. People love the truth, people want their ears to be tickled. Congregations don't exist in a vacuum. There are influences, trends, choices, demographics, factors outside of our control. And all of those impact the vitality and longevity of a congregation. However, I contend that we have a bigger hand than what we might think in shaping what a congregation is in the present and what it could be in the future. Consider Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Seven churches, five of which, which had real problems, not because of what was happening outside, but because of what was happening inside. Jesus tells those five churches they can change their trajectory. And at the risk of beating a dead horse, let me say it a different way. Whether or not those congregations remained in fellowship with Christ was up to them. It was up to them. The message of individual responsibility could not be any clearer. In Ephesians 4.16, Paul says, From the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The degree to which the body can grow depends on the degree to which every joint supplies strength and the degree to which every part does its share. And this is where conversations begin to turn very, very uncomfortable. Are we each individually willing to hit the pause button, swallow our pride, look into the mirror of God's word and have honest conversations with ourselves about what we can do to improve things in the present? Or will we view ourselves as victims of circumstances beyond our control, press on with the status quo, and assuage our consciences with thoughts like, well, I'm okay with this, so God will be okay with this. Or maybe we assume the problem's not really with us, it's with someone else. Regardless of what is happening around us, I believe the church will be whatever we want it to be. Therefore, fulfilling the Lord's vision for the church depends on each of us taking personal responsibility for its state.